awesome. Hey, guys. Uh, who else wants a table thrown at them this morning? <clears throat> if you don't receive Jesus today, I'm going to throw a table at you. Do you know that's actually biblical? Somebody raise your hand. Come on. Right? Right? It's biblical. Uh, who knows Jesus threw a table? I'm just trying to be like Jesus, guys. I've got one goal in my life, and that is to be like Jesus come into the church, start flipping tables in Jesus' name. All right, let me uh, sign into my computer here. All right. Good morning, everyone. Good to see everyone. Hey, we're going to do a little bit of a recap of uh, last Sunday. Um, unfortunately, there, were no t- there was no table flipping last Sunday. I can actually see the time, so this is going to be good. You guys are not going to be here all day, uh, just for most of it. So we're going to do a little bit of a recap. I actually was not speaking of volunteering. I, I feel like I'm echoing. I know that we're talking about prophets this morning, but God help us. All right, good deal. All right, so uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a recap. I wasn't in here last week. I had the privilege of being back with our children, uh, not even the youth, you know, amen. I was with like the seven-year-olds. Actually, a lot of these folks back here, uh, we, were, we were going over healing and that Jesus still, still heals today. That's a tongue twister. Jesus still heals today. Uh, and it was really great because we got to come up at the end of the service and a lot of the kids got to pray over people and that was really really, really fun. However, uh, I also knew that I was a part of a a teaching series this week and continue that series. So instead of sitting down and kind of going over all of my notes, I had to sit down and I had to re-listen. How many of you guys actually go and check out our sermons online after? Because it's it's actually a really great thing to do. I remember when I first got saved, I went to a small church uh, over off Richmond Road, and, you know, back then it was like YouTube had barely become a thing. So I didn't know about going and finding my favorite pastor, you know, really anointed speaker or whatever it is, teacher um, on YouTube. Back then it was still, you know, if you didn't have a CD or go to the website of the church you were at, uh, you didn't have those kinds of resources. So I was really thankful back then and just hungry for the Lord. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll briefly, my testimony is that I was completely addicted to the world. I was so hungry for the world, and then I got saved. You know that, that verse where it's, I'm transferred into his marvelous life. I, everything changed is the idea. Uh, and I became ravenous and still hungry, but for the things of God. So I remember uh, how thankful I was to have those CDs of that pastor back then who really, really fed into me at a pivotal, uh, pivotal point in my life. And if you're not, let me just say this again, if you're not actually going back and listening to some of those sermons you know, from weeks and even years past, uh, you're really missing out on a really important, well, many important elements. I mean, God's truth, hopefully, right, if we're doing our job right. But also, speaking of Vision Sunday, there's so much vision that gets unpacked in the sermons and sometimes, more often than not, ends up being a prophetic picture of what we're actually going through. Uh, more often than not, we're preaching to ourselves up here than anything else, and that's always a really encouraging thing to look back and go, man, look at where we were in 2018 uh, when Brad was preaching through Ezra Nehemiah, and then God gives us this building, and then you see exactly these types of dynamics through those passages of Scripture and what Brad was preaching during that time happening in our church body. And uh, so anyways... 
a little bit of a plug to go check out those resources online. It's really powerful. Uh, we were, Brad was going through 1 Samuel. Of course, we're talking about the making of a prophet. This is such a vast, um, really kind of sermon series in reality that we're, you we can't even scratch the surface of this. I mean, we haven't even gotten to Isaiah walking naked or, you know, Elijah cooking feces over fire. Like, this is, this is a big thing, people. Guys, you're supposed to laugh at that. It's in the Bible, okay? If you didn't know that it's in the Bible, I promise you, this is a much more interesting book than you maybe realized. Uh, uh, so the making of a prophet, you know, not necessarily how they do the things they do, but kind of what, what kind of heart did they carry? What, what kind of attitude? And of course, Brad chose to really key in on the life of Samuel to, to really show us uh, what, what it looks like to be that kind of, um, and I'll, I'll maybe put a little addendum. I don't know that we're going to go into the life of David, but like a prophet after God's own heart. That's really kind of the idea. And today we're going to go, I'm not going to get much into David at all, but really, you know, as Brad did last week, he kind of gave us the, the summary of Samuel's life, his interaction with Israel as a prophet who would bring sometimes incredibly difficult words of the Lord to often a very stubborn and obstinate people. But then God's faithfulness through that entire ordeal um, and also Samuel's uh, kind of attitude and demeanor and heart posture through it all. And then today we're going to go a little bit further into Samuel's life and then kind of summarize the last days of his life as things kind of as often happens in the Old Testament go terribly wrong <laughs> for Israel, right? The whole story of the Old Testament often is a story of tragedy where God's people um, continually um, are called by God, empowered by God, but then ultimately fail with, a, what, with the purpose of ultimately pointing to the one who will not fail, which is Jesus. And that's kind of the whole thread throughout the Old Testament. So Brad asked a question last week, and that question, he said, was, you know, really uh, pertinent to us now and to anyone who's really wanting to operate, you know, in this idea. You know, if you're a prophet, really, what is a prophet? We're not going into that today, but I'll just say briefly, if you have the word of the Lord, you know, um, the, the Bible itself is the word of God. If you're carrying God's word. Now, that's not the real nitty gritty and all the different nuances of what it really means to walk in the gift and calling of a prophet. But if you prophesy, if you're just prophesying, you're relaying God's message to someone else or a people, right? Sometimes you're displaying it. Isaiah 8.18, Isaiah said, I and the children God has given me are for signs and wonders. His own life was a display, was a prophecy. So Brad said last week, and, and really he just quoted here from the scripture itself from 1 Samuel 6, but he said, can I trust you? This is us. Can God trust us to honor his presence and to boldly speak his word. 1 Samuel 6.20, um, let me just read that passage really quickly. I'll start in verse 19. It says, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord struck a great blow. So what it is, is they've looked upon the ark of the covenant, right? And they all die. That's a hard reality of what's happening. And Brad is doing a really incredible job of kind of pastoring us through some of these more difficult texts in the Scripture. If you've ever had concerns about these difficult texts, good. 
That's exactly what it's there for. It's to, to rub you a little bit so that you'll go deeper and really seek the heart of God in the passage. Verse 20 says, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord who is holy? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So it's kind of like they're really trying to get the ark of God. They're like, this thing is wild. Let's get it out of here. <laughs> like they just, they really don't know what's going to happen. Things Again, Brad described, they shouldn't. They shouldn't really even be in their possession uh, because of all the different things that, again, Brad described last week. But the reality is, is there's a right way to handle God's ark which is his actual, his throne is the way you're supposed to see it. It's called the mercy seat. And there's a right and a wrong way to approach that reality, okay? Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So we're trying to, you know, go through some of that right now. It says, uh, again, God judges the men of Beth Shemesh. They look upon the ark. The reality is that they had violated um, the laws in the Bible, in relationship to the ark, that's going to be in Leviticus 1, 3, and Numbers 4, 5, and 6, in relationship to how you handle that ark. How, what do you do? I mean, you're supposed to be considering this. This is supposed to be the throne of the Almighty God. You wouldn't just approach that. If we really take it seriously, if you don't just read it with modern eyes, if you don't just read it as some kind of fairy tale, if you approach it seriously that you would assume that there's a right way. I don't even let my kids approach my bedroom with that kind of casualness, let alone the actual throne of God on earth, right? That's kind of, again, that's, that's what we're supposed to see. That's what's in view here. So they violate that, okay? The second question that Brad asked or that is asked of us is, who is able to stand before the Lord uh, who is, is holy, right? So what do we do with this thing? How do we even approach it? How do we come with the presence of God? What do we do with the presence? But then how do we, who can even stand there? Uh, there's a verse uh, in, in the Psalms, I believe it's in Psalm 24, it says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord except that man who has clean hands and a pure heart, right? So the Bible wants to give us answers, and we'll get into that here in a second of what that actually looks like. But first, what I want to, I kind of want to talk to you as, as I was thinking about these things yesterday. Um, it's so funny how these things happen, and I'm not going to, I'm going to spare you some of the details because it's actually a little embarrassing. And you can't even do anything. It's like, there's just, it takes me about an hour before my mind is even ready to write down like a single note. And I'm not getting a lot yesterday, so I actually get up to go use the restroom. I'm on the way to the restroom. I'm walking all the way across the church, and suddenly a thought comes into my mind. And it's uh, basically this. Is the sun scary? Is the sun scary to you? From your vantage point, some of you will say yes because you're thinking beyond their actual question, but from your vantage point right now, you walk outside, is the sun scary to you? No, except for those few of us who are what's called uh, heliophobes, all right? Those who have irrational fear of the sun. The sun's not scary. It's not this terrifying reality, okay? But then the second question is, but how about, what if you go a little bit closer to it? Is it scary then, right? So I want you to think about that verse in verse 19, when these men look upon the ark, all right? They're looking on the ark. I want us, when we hit some of these harder passages, to start thinking about these questions, because I think that this is a good way that God wants to answer some of these questions. And then again, keeping in mind what does it mean if we're called to then carry the word of the Lord and be that kind of generation, uh, that prophetic generation who prepares a people to actually approach 
the actual presence of, of God. Okay? So is the sun, is the sun scary? Again, it's not scary from our vantage point because, again, uh, it's, it's actually a necessity for life. But the sun is about 93 million miles away from us, and obviously it, it heats our planet. But if we were even slightly closer to the sun, we'd all be crispy critters, wouldn't we? How many of you guys know that if we were just out of our orbit by this, the, like a fraction of the inch, an inch, if we were just a little bit closer, talk about global warming, it'd be a whole other story, right? So when we look at it in that perspective, it, it's actually a very frightening reality, the sun. Um, but it's not frightening because of any kind of moral reality of the sun. The sun isn't simply just the sun, right? Because the sun is good or bad. It's simply just the sun, right? Okay? I would just think with me here. So, but what changes is, is not that the sun changed, it's that our proximity to the sun changed. So when we think about the ark of God, we think about God's holiness. When we think about our proximity to it, we think about these men here in this passage. I want to walk us through some of these harder verses in the Bible. So our proximity changes to the sun, and it becomes a, a fearful thing. And again, the same is true of the raw power of the presence of God. If we think that goosebumps during a worship service is the same as God's presence... Uh, I remember one uh, sermon by Mike Bickle. I remember hearing him talking about the presence of God showing up in the room, and he just felt the gentle whisper of the Spirit say, if that were really my presence, like you'd be on the floor right now. It's probably just like a tiny little angel or something, you know? It's like not the raw presence of Yahweh, okay? All right, we got more fear of the Lord for Thor than we do for Jesus, Okay? My son just bought a little action figure from Ollie's yesterday. He got it like for like 12 bucks. It's an awesome action figure, and it's Thor. And I just don't want my kid growing up thinking that Thor, we ought to have the fear of the Lord for Thor, but not Jesus, recognizing that. And I, anyways, so the presence of God. So if we think that in our, and again, it's not that he isn't here with us, right? But to what degree, to what measure is what I'm talking about? What proximity? How close are we? Those goosebumps in those worship services are probably something more like the, the ray of like sun rays coming through your kitchen window on a Sunday morning, right? They're, they're warm. They illuminate your house. Um, they give you nice feelings and emotions, um, but if you got a little bit closer to it, it's a whole nother story. You actually would need some help. Um, think about astronauts. Think about the heat shielding on a space shuttle. Our atmosphere and come back into the Earth's atmosphere. This is an incredible vivid picture. And again, I want you to think about the holy place and where the ark dwelt, okay? They would go out of the heavenly atmosphere, okay? Out of the holy of holies, Right? And they would come into the Holy of Holies, and they would go in and they would come out. Going into the Holy of Holies is like going into God's atmosphere. It's incredibly hot. Hebrews 29, I'm getting ahead of, ahead of myself, 1229 talks about God being a consuming fire. So we think about the heat shielding of a space shuttle. Let me read this quote to you real quick. It says, the sun's surface, the coldest part, still burns at an insane 9,940 degrees Fahrenheit. Very few things beside other suns could survive that kind of heat. Listen to that again. Very few things except other suns could, could uh, survive that kind of heat. 
A standard spaceship will protect an astronaut by temperatures of up to 20, uh, two, excuse me, um, space suit, excuse me, will protect an astronaut by temperatures of up to 248 degrees Fahrenheit. Still uh, great in most instances, but extremely poor uh, for trying to touch the sun. The sun is about 93 million miles away from Earth and is about 3 million miles from the surface that, uh, that temperatures would scorch up to above. Anyways, it would, it's really hot, right? So let's see. So again, I already said this, if, we, if, if, you go, if they leave our atmosphere and come back, you're looking at about 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, okay? So it says the integrity of the shielding would be compromised. Um, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't even get close is the point. So this is the same with God's presence. He hasn't changed. Uh, when, in fact, what it is is when you leave the atmosphere, okay, earth, and you go into the presence, heaven, you don't have the ability to do that without help. It comes to mind, right? There's reasons why. The same is true with God's presence. He hasn't changed. In fact, he gave Israel laws to interact with him and to make them fit to operate in his raw, rarefied space, which is the, holies of, the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. Yet time and time again, Israel tried to enter God's atmosphere on their own terms without a heat shield which is the obedient love and faithfulness that God required. They broke God's law that was given for their benefit, but it exposed. So it was given for their benefit, but it exposed their insufficiency. And they served the gods of the other nations rather than the God of Israel. And the God that doesn't change broke out against them. And that's what's happening right here in this text when we read over these things. They broke out against them, and they were casual with his presence. They attempted to approach him without the proper covering. Without the proper covering, you die. Jesus is that covering. So I want you to consider that phrase again. Very few things beside other sons could survive that kind of heat. When we ask ourselves, who can stand before God? The answer is no one. No one except one who is just like him, another son, the Son, Jesus Christ, He makes us righteous through faith in Him and covers us by His blood shed on the cross for our sins, and He gives us power to become sons. We are clothed in Christ, and we can enter the holy place, which is fiercer than a million sons. So I want you to consider this in relation to the fear of the Lord. This is a fear that is based on not just, again, His nature that is shifting or changing. You know, oftentimes, I guess the reason why I want to go over this is we read verses like this, and you live in a day when you have theologians who will point out these texts and say, this can't be like Jesus. And you have words that say, true theology, Jesus is the highest theology. And if you don't see Jesus do it, then it's not good theology. And I would point to you Jesus doing it. Right. Love is a consuming fire. It's fiercer than a million suns. And we talked about that burden being lifted. What he does is when he removes the stain and guilt of sin from our life, he covers us. He doesn't just cover us. He comes and indwells us with his presence, and he gives us access boldly. By the remission of sin, he's atoned for our guilt. He's made it right, everything that was wrong. And now he gives us access to engage with the Son. That's amazing, okay? So when we see this verse, okay, and you're going to see this again as we go through the rest of the text here that I will get into shortly. 
Every time in the Old Testament, when you see God breaking out against Israel or the nations, you have to understand that they, there has been a cosmic, there's been cosmic disorder. There is something that is deathly that would throw off the entire axis of reality if God allowed that to continue. So God will set a precedent in one moment with these men right here. And he says, if they even look upon this throne, in Leviticus, it's supposed to be covered. There's a right way to come into his orbit, into his presence, into his space, right? So there's a right way to do that. And blessed be to God, right? We have been given Jesus. I think of Romans chapter 7. He says, who will save me from this body of death? Wretched, oh, wretched man that I am. He's like, but blessed be Christ Jesus. He's made a way. He's actually given me access through his blood. That's amazing. It goes into Romans 8 and it says, therefore, don't walk according to the flesh. Don't do it your own way, but walk according to the spirit. And that's awesome. Okay. So it's not about whether or not God is good or bad. We know that the Bible tells us he's good. We, we know him to be good. So when we see something like this in 1 Samuel 6.20, we know that some, someone attempted to do something or access something in God's ordered world apart from him. And he, the Bible tells us that, that that can only bring death. In the day that you eat from that tree, you rebel from God's love and order. You will surely die. But the immovable, unchangeable, unchangeable reality of his presence is that God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. We are lucky that that fire is a fire of goodness and love, but it also consumes everything that is perverse to that love. So he wants to consume the things in us that hinder love. But when, when a person is obstinate to that, when we continue in that, um, that's when that fire, it talks about wood, hay, and stubble being burnt up instead of leaving precious stones. So I hope that that helps when we think about these passages, when we read about God's judgment in the Old Testament. We've been going over that a lot these past few weeks, and we don't want to just, it's not, it's both and. We don't want to be afraid to enter the presence, but we want to come in with the right understanding of who God is and what he gives us access to so that when we do come into his presence, we know boldly, I have been redeemed by the blood of God and I have bold access. Not some like casual, immature flippancy, like I can go to my mom and dad's refrigerator and just get whatever I want. Or I just grab my dad's keys and take the car out for a spin and do donuts in the parking lot. That's not sonship. A lot of what we've seen in the world today has been called sonship, but it's actually casual immaturity. And I want to confront that, and I would say that would be the marker of a prophet. If we see that in Samuel, we see, we see that in him. He confronts the sons of Eli. He even later on has to deal with his own children. So, all right, so if you haven't yet, all right, which you wouldn't because I haven't told you to, go ahead and open your Bibles and turn to uh, Samuel chapter 12. And I'm going to go through this at kind of lightning pace because I took a little bit of time there and I realized that. But we're going to read through Samuel 12 here, and then I'm going to summarize a little bit from Samuel 15, and we're going to call it a day, okay? How many of you guys are still with me? God is good. God is, uh, he's merciful, but he's just, amen? How many of you guys know that that's a good thing? You wouldn't want a husband to be merciful towards someone who committed an atrocity towards his wife or his children. 
You wouldn't want a judge to be merciful towards a, uh, someone who just blatantly, say, serial killer, all right? How many of you guys know it's right that we want to judge Hitler? Amen? Amen? Can I get a truth on that? That's a, that's, that's a good thing. We don't want Jesus to be um, soft on those things. 1 Samuel 12, 1 through 5. So when Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice. And all, all, so again, this, here what we're doing today. We're, again, I just wanted to catch up, but also go into the making of a prophet. What, is, what do we see of Samuel here? He said, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you. And now Samuel's old. He's old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth to this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Okay? It says, Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? So who's given me money so that I pretend like I don't see their sin? Testify against me and I will restore you. So he's calling the people to account and he's saying, test me. Where have have, have I not had integrity? And they said, this is what they said to Samuel, you have not defrauded us nor oppressed us or taken anything away from our hand. So the whole idea in the first five verses here is that Samuel is faithful to the, and the people agree with him. Samuel has integrity for decades. And I would say that's the making or the marker of a prophet. Not simply that whether or not a prophet could prophesy something accurately or even that they have signs and wonders, but do they have integrity for decades? Decades. There's ministries and churches that have decades of faithfulness. There's fathers and mothers of the past when I think about what they've walked through and the testimony and sign on the earth that they've become and how their life still prophesies. That's a marker of a true prophet. Legacy. Integrity for decades. 1 Samuel 12, 6-9, Samuel reminds Israel of God's past faithfulness. But they forgot the Lord their God, it says. Let me just read that. It says, and Samuel said to the people, the Lord is my witness. So he's calling them in a courtroom, right? He says, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers? He's reminding them of God's past faithfulness. And he says, then therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. Okay. So again, the whole point is that God's been faithful um, with them, but they still forgot God. Samuel 12, 11, God is, uh, he's still faithful to deliver Israel. He's even given Israel Samuel as a deliverer, but they still want a king. They're still obstinate. They want to be like the other nations. They're not satisfied with God's order. It'd be like you going, you know what? This whole gravity thing, nah, I don't actually want that. I want to fly today. Here's a cliff. Let's go for it. I'm Neo in the matrix and I I go for it, right? I'm just going to go against the order of reality. That's exactly what's happening here is Israel's going like, you know what? I know that you have a spiritual order and that spiritual order is just as real. In fact, it's more important than even the natural order. But we're just going to go against that God and we're going to chase these other gods. We're going to build our idols and our Asherah poles and our, we're going to do what we can to see what we can do. And ultimately, we just want to be like the other nations. And God is saying, nope, that doesn't work. It's oil and water. It doesn't mix. 1 Samuel 12, 13, Samuel and God make a concession. 
But this concession is with a conditional promise. And I want you to hear this. So when we read 1 Samuel 12, 13 through 15, if the people and the king follow God's commands. So starting in verse 13. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen. So again, everybody knows that that's Saul. And if you read this text, you know what what Samuel's already said of Saul. Saul is going to take all their young men. He's going to take their possessions. Basically, he's going to use the resources. It'd be like uh, profiteering. This doesn't happen in Washington at all right now. You know, like they're taking your tax dollars, right? And like rubbing their buddies back and they're making deals. And there's pharmaceutical companies that are getting benefits and things. God only knows like how many people are getting money from this whole coronavirus ordeal right now that actually isn't helping anyone, but it's like helping line some guy's pockets in Washington somewhere. That's what Saul's doing right? Saul is taking all the resources that was meant to establish God's kingdom in Israel, and he's doing it for his own benefit and selfish, selfish gain. So, but regardless of that, Samuel, he's warned them that Saul's going to do that. Here he's saying, but regardless, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to give you a king. Verse 14, he says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against his commandments. I just remember that order. You don't rebel against his commandments or the, uh, uh, the commandments of the Lord. And if both of you, both you, the people, and the king over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. So that's a condition, right? If, if there's an if, that's a conditional statement. You guys see that in your Bibles? So if you obey, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice, the, the voice of the Lord, but you rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So... God gives them this concession. He gives them the thing they asked for. They asked for a king. God says, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. It's not his ideal will, but he goes with it, and he works through it anyways. So in verse 18, he confirms this with a sign. Earlier on in chapter 7, there's a different place. There's several places in Samuel when God thunders with like glory from heaven, uh, and it's a sign for Israel to do what? Like, like, just like what you guys saw earlier. I mean, it's really sort of a sign saying, like, if the thunder went off right now, you know, we, we should probably perk our ears up. And that's what happens in the Bible several times. Samuel speaks, boom, there's thunder, and the people are supposed to be listening. So Samuel warns them again. He says, you know, if you listen, it'll be well with you. If you don't, things are going to get hairy. So verse 18, so Samuel called upon the Lord, um, And the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. So again, this sounds like really nice. It's like thunder and rain. No, this was like a, here we are. We're going, give us a king. Give us a king. Samuel's like, you really don't want one. Give us a king. Okay, I'll give you one. Thunder, rain. You you would have been shocked because it was was dry. There's no, there's, it's it's harvest season. And then suddenly there's thunder and rain. And the Bible says here in verse 18 that the people, the people feared God and Samuel. I don't know, I've read through many passages of scripture. I could read places where I could infer into the text. I could read into it and say, man, the fear of the Lord is on this person's life. But I don't know overtly in the text where I see where it talks about the fear of the Lord actually on someone other than Jesus. It says in Isaiah 11 that he actually, the fear of the Lord rests on him. So it says right there that he confirms it with a sign and the fear of the Lord. The people fear God and Samuel. The fear of God Again, when we talk about what does it mean to be a prophetic generation and what are the markers and makings of a prophet, the fear of God is a marker of a prophet. Signs and wonders. Brad uh, kind of 
not, he didn't spend a lot of time going on it, but last week he mentioned that there was a lightning clap during a prayer meeting we had when we first planted the church. It happened right in front of his farm. You could look at that one of two ways. You could look at it passively and casually, or you could recognize that God's sovereign over the nations and everything that we do. And when we were praying that morning or that afternoon, we were praying, God, make King's Church a church for revival harvest, which is what's happening in this verse, and God, give us the integrity to walk it out. That, that lightning, it sounds awesome. You're like, wow, that's fear the Lord. That's lightning. You know what that does for me? Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Because I know God's saying, all right, I hear you. Are you going to have the integrity to walk it out for decades? So I don't take that casually. That lightning happened. It shook the house that we were sitting in. It, was, it wasn't even raining. It was the middle of the day. It was sunny outside. 1 Samuel 12, 19, the people ask Samuel to intercede. So again, when we talk about a marker, make, marker, marker in making of a prophet, it says in 19, all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. So again, this wasn't just like a casual rain. They're like suddenly like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. Run, we're all going to die. And the Lord said to Samuel, or they said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God that we will not die for he, we have added to our sins. We've piled sin on top of our sins already for this evil that we've done by asking for a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid because that you've done this evil yet. Um, do not turn aside. So here's the point. Don't be afraid because do this. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. I'm going to take a second and turn back to the answer to the question that I asked earlier that Brad asked us yesterday, which is, who can stand before the Lord? This is 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. Again, the Ashtaroth was just a foreign god. It was a pole they would dance around, and they would often do like um, sexual things and immorality would happen. He says, put that stuff away from you. Uh, follow God with all your heart. Give your, give, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver, deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the question is, how do we actually stand before God? Well, you have to be able to follow him with all your heart. Raise your hand if you feel like you're doing. To that, we need something. We need help to, to leave this orbit, okay? We need help. We need someone to give us access to get us in so that we can actually follow the commands. Amen? Amen? Okay. I think you know who this person is. So they ask, they ask him, so they, he tells them, follow God with all your heart. Do not turn aside, um, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. So basically, again, don't do the things that I've already told you Saul's going to do. Well, he's going to do these things, but don't, you don't do them, okay? For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, his namesake is his own person, his own identity. It's who he is. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So basically, he's happy to have a relationship with you. Moreover, as for me, says Samuel, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. 
So a marker of a prophet, the people ask Samuel to intercede, Samuel intercedes on their behalf. So intercession is a mark of a prophet, even despite the people's obstinance. The prophet doesn't remove himself, but he considers himself one with them, and he cries out to the Lord on their behalf. This is true in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah goes before the holiness of God, and he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And the angel comes, do you hear that? I live, I'm a man. He, he takes it on himself, the burden himself. He doesn't self-righteously point the finger. He goes, God, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he carries the burden of intercession to the Lord, and he cries out for mercy. So that's the, make, the mark of a prophet, is it that we would go and, and we would be a generation of people in a church that wouldn't just look like Chad said earlier, that we wouldn't just look at Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or, or whatever, right? Or the things happening in the world, other churches, other pastors, other groups. It doesn't mean there aren't things that need to be addressed. Point to us first. And then have we rightly allowed the cross to do its work in us and deliver us and remove that. That's the whole idea of judge not lest you be judged. But if you judge, judge like this. It doesn't just say don't judge. It says, but if you judge, judge like this. First, remove the log from your eye. You're blind. We just read that. Like, hey, you know, remove the log from your eye. Then once that's done, it doesn't mean you'll never need to do it again. He's like, you're going to be removing lots of logs. (laughs) Amen. But then once that's done, help your friend, help your neighbor remove the the speck of dust from their eye. So God is good and he wants us to come to him and he wants to come to us to him on behalf of others. But he wants us first to come to him and, and allow the cross to have its work in our life. So the rest of this chapter ends and Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Wow. Man, if that doesn't hit your heart, the good, who, raise your hand right now if you would like to be instructed in the good and right way. Samuel says, don't turn from the Lord. I'm going to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only, and, the, and the, here it is, right? How do you do it? How do you walk in the good and right way? Only Fear the Lord. Treat him like he's the son. Okay? He's good. C.S. Lewis used to say he's, he's, he's not a tame lion, right? He's a good, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. All right. So, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. Serve him faithfully. So, don't just talk about it. Do it. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, and this is the terrifying part, he's just repeating what it says in Exodus verse 25. He's abounding, he's abundant, he's overflowing with loving kindness, but he brings justice to the wicked, right? But if you still do wickedly, even after all I've done for you, even after this, the idea is even after Jesus has poured his blood out on the cross and he's made a way of escape, even still after that, and you've, you've even walked in the gospel. Hebrews 10 says if you then after that you trample underfoot the Son of God. It says it's worse for you than even if you had lived under the law. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. I think of America, I think of the world that we're in right now in our country, and I think about all the different prophetic words, and I'm not going to get much into that, but 
we have a lot of shifting happening, a lot of people asking, well, what actually does it mean to carry the word of the Lord? And I think one thing, many people missed it, that's obvious. There's a lot of things that people didn't miss. If you follow these kind of circles, you know a lot of people predicted a second term for Donald Trump and this, this, that, and the other, and there's so many different reasons for why someone would do that. And that's not my point. My point isn't political stuff here. My point is what actually causes so many people who are prophets to miss it that badly. And I think some of it has to do with how we've, for, for unfortunately, almost generations, treated casually this gift of God called prophecy. And again, I'm not talking about this like we're afraid that God's going to zap us and burn us up. Not what I'm talking about. What, I'm, what I am talking about is recognizing the reality of who God is and because of the blood of Jesus, I can say it as well with my soul. Amen? Okay. So I think that if some of us had done that um, in the years leading up to 20, this last election, we would have had a lot less people um, basically sticking their foot in their mouth. Um, so, and I'm not going to read through this for time's sake, but in chapter 15, what you get into is you get Saul's rejection because of his pride. Saul's rejected by God. I, I, I really recommend, go and read these stories. These stories are alive. There is so much truth for you in these stories. But saying, I think what chapter is that? Is it, it's talking about Saul, and you will prophesy, and with them you'll be turned into another man. It's like he's a new creation almost. Yet, here we know the end of the story is that he, he doesn't stick with it. He doesn't do the integrity thing for decades. He gets a little bit of an infilling, and then he gets, and he turns back to his own selfish needs and wants, desires, and he starts profiteering and lining his pockets and really just doing uh, terrible, evil things in Israel. And ultimately, you get to chapter 15, verse 23, excuse me, verse 22, and it says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord, the Lord has great delight. So Saul's wanting to, he's wanting to repent and he's trying to give sacrifices, right? And he's trying to come and he's like trying to basically do the ritual. And God's going, like, right now, I'm not really interested in your ritual because you're actually not doing what I've asked you to do. Does it make sense? It's it's um, hypocrisy, right? Someone said, actions speak louder than words. So Paul right now, he's got a lot of words. He's got, Lord, I'm really sorry. Please don't do this. I know I messed up. But the Lord is going, but your, your actions, you, your words are good. You have all the creeds and the confessions, but your life is telling me something very different from your mouth. And that's what's happening. So God tells him all that. Verse 23 says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. The King James says witchcraft. And presumption, presumption, I mean, we're talking about going casually before the ark of God. This is exactly it. And presumption is as the iniquity of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And you guys know the rest of that part of the story is that, of course, God calls up a different kind of king. A, a king who is not after his own way, his own heart. Not after the way of even the people, but he's after God's own heart. Meaning that he messed up many, many times. David makes plenty of mistakes. He sins with Bathsheba. It, it throws actually his whole end of his life into chaos and tragedy. 
But the, the Bible is so clear about the difference of David's heart. David is constantly trying to go back to God and say, how do we approach you the right way? He sets up a new order of worship. He looks at the, the law and he goes, how did the Levites do it? Let's make sure that we do it this way. Let's make sure that we are honoring to God's covenant. Let's follow what God said follow. Let's do what God said do. I'm not going to come to God on my own terms. I'm going to come to God his way. Because he's the Lord and I'm not. Jesus, if Jesus said it, how much more should we say it? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Father, not my will be done, but yours. That's how we approach the ark. That's how we set up a tabernacle of praise in this room. That a people who come together in the fear of the Lord, recognizing that God is God and that we are not, that his ways are higher than our ways, that he loves us and wants to save us from death. He doesn't want to kill us. The Bible also says that it is his will that none should perish. The thing is that we chase after death, <laughs> right? So that's what comes here at the end of the, the last few parts here um, of First uh, Samuel chapter 15. Uh, Samuel begins, he says, And Samuel did not see Saul again. Until the day of his death, until the day of Samuel's death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Even to the end, Samuel is in travailing intercession and grief. His heart is connected, even with this man, Saul, who was obstinate and disobeyed against God. And that is the marker of a prophet. And if we're going to be a prophetic generation, we cannot afford to look, like Chad said, at the dirty room of our neighbors without dealing and cleaning up and clearing the tables, flipping over the tables in our own hearts. Okay? So let's pray together and let's have some worship. A prophetic generation is obedience to Jesus and sees signs and wonders in the earth. If you would with me just raise your hands to Jesus. Jesus, we just invite you here this morning to come and do a wonder in our hearts. God, we recognize our own obstinance sometimes. Lord, I, I think if we really kind of pull the curtain back on our own life and we realize that we are more hypocritical than we sometimes would care to admit. And Lord, I, I thank you, Jesus, that we can confess with our hearts, you said that if we believe and we confess with our hearts and we believe on the Lord Jesus, we'll be saved. That if we put our faith in you, God, not just our, our thought faith, but our actions, that we believe in you in both word and deed, that we, we confess it, but we walk in it and we do it. Lord Jesus, I ask you to come and cover us in your blood. Lord, that you would right now save us from sin Lord, many of us have treated your presence casually and not even known it. Father, I think of my own life, how often I've treated your presence casually and didn't even realize it. But Lord, your love is a consuming fire. And this morning, we're thankful that you're with us and that you want to not just save us from sin, death, and hell, but you want to live with us eternally in your kingdom, that you want us to have that precious, eternal life. And Lord, I thank you that you, you prayed the prayer, 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we want to earth your will. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we know that if it's true for the ark of your glory, then we know that we have a better covenant with better promises, like it says in Hebrews. How much more should we treat the Son of God who shed his blood for our sins to save us? God, I pray that you would renew in us a right spirit. It says a contrite heart, a humble heart, he will not reject. Psalm 55, it says, renew in me a clean heart, O God, a right spirit. Renew a right spirit within me. Who could ascend the hill of the Lord except those who have clean hands and a pure heart? Jesus, we're praying this morning to be those people, a prophetic generation who have the word of the Lord. But God, we need you to come and flip over the tables of our own compromise, the places where we've built up carelessness and presumption toward you and who you are and the reality of your majesty and your holiness, God, that you are so different. You are, your love burns brighter than a million suns and it's consuming. And Lord, it wants to consume all the things in us that are hindering love. So God, I just want to, would you guys just, if you would come forward this morning to receive that love, to allow God to come and consume in your heart anything that's hindering love this morning, what in you has been presumptuous toward the holy place of God that he's given you access by the blood of Jesus, but you haven't entered in? I just want to invite the altar to come up, to come up to the front of the church if you have known Jesus your whole life or whether this is brand new for you, Jesus wants to know you. He wants to have, he wants to give you eternal life. He wants to share life with you, but he also wants to give you access and call you to a purpose. And like I said, if that's you, come up. But otherwise, we're going to go ahead and end the service today and just worship Jesus together. I love you guys. Thank you so much.